Hello, this is Annie Catherine, host of the multi-award-winning podcast, Soulful Series. Thank you for joining me as I chat with award-winning authors who have written a memoir or nonfiction motivational book and have an uplifting message to share. I'm here with Salima Nimoy. She is a storyteller, a journalist, and author. Born in Los Angeles, her coming-of-age journey was shaped in the 1960s by soul music then by the turbulent multicultural 1970s in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. And she has written a memoir called Since I Lost My Baby. And we're gonna be talking about this memoir today. So welcome, Salima. I'm so glad you're joining me. Thank you, Annie. I'm so delighted to be here and so appreciative of you. Thank you. So I wanted to just dive right in and talk about your memoir. So why don't you tell us why you wrote your memoir? Well, there's an old joke that authors like to tell about what's the worst reason anyone can give to the question of why did you write this book? And it was because my life has been so interesting. Everyone tells me I should write a book. <laughs> but the fact is mine has been. And sorry if you know, I just went for it. But it's been very much, uh, you know, Forrest Gump meets Motown kind of story. Um, and, and my coming of age is, is truly, it's an every man or every woman story, even though the circumstances of a reader's life and mine may be dramatically different. The desires, challenges, heartbreaks, and triumphs that I went through are ones most of us face. And I felt compelled to tell the story of my coming of age to recount the losses and the redemption uh, that I experienced both to entertain and to encourage people. Also, I wrote it to fulfill the final directive of the man who prompted me to take myself seriously as a writer because he said to me, next time you must write your book. That was in 1978. <laughs> oh. So it took me a long time to recognize that what he meant was to tell my story, not someone else's. Mm -hmm. And then another long time to believe that my story mattered and that I matter. And in the end, that revelation became one of the major gifts that the book gives to the reader. I agree with you. I did get a lot out of your book and it was entertaining and it was encouraging. And I learned a lot about the years that you went through. So I appreciated it. But I also wanted to talk to you about why you chose the title, Since I Lost My Baby. Well, Motown and soul music have had a tremendous influence in my life, especially when I was a teenager. And since I lost the baby is since I lost my baby is the title of a 1960s Motown song by The Temptations. For me, it represented several things. Um, on the cover of the book, it's a nod to Motown, so it it tells the reader that the story inside has a connection to that music and the era. The other meaning of it, the deeper meaning of it for me personally, is that my story takes place during the years between when my daughter was taken away from me as a newborn and when I found her 24 years later. So essentially my memoir tells what happened during those two decades since I lost my baby. Well, and that leads me right into my next question. Um, you published the memoir in um, 2020, but it recounts 1967 to 1990 
one. So what is the significance of the dates that you chose to write your memoir? Well, 1967 is when I gave birth to my daughter. Uh, I was a teenager. I'd been locked up for five months in a horrible home for unwed mothers. And thankfully, those places went out of fashion as soon as I was discharged and the summer of love began. And it was very bizarre for me to walk out of having been locked up for and punished for that into a world that had changed so much from the one that condemned me to be hidden away in shame. Um, my generation was now about free love, burning bras, lighting up, rebelling and protesting. And it was very confusing. Mm -hmm. And a few months later, I went to the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival, where I was privileged to see the live performance of Otis Redding and had my first real contact with hippies and the counterculture. And it wasn't long after that that I quit trying to be a good girl and became part of that movement. I didn't realize it at the time, but the rebellion and the protest of the 60s and the 70s was where I could let out the anger and pain that, I'd, that had been brought upon me by how I was treated for becoming pregnant and losing my daughter. And I think that there's big moments in history that were swept into big movements of grief and anger and to which we can dump our personal pain and frustration like a collective stew and find comfort with other broken and grieving souls. The story that I tell in my memoir ends in 1991 because that's when I found my daughter and we were reunited. Um, so the story of my coming of age is bookended by the loss of and reunion with my daughter. I love that. I love Thank that. You. So can you tell us a little bit about the cover? Yes. Um, that photo was taken when I was about 20 years old, three years after I'd lost my daughter. And there's a, a sadness and a mystery in my face that I carried most of my life, being misunderstood and, and rejected and suffering such a deep wound and being told to pretend it never happened. And my soul had lost so much and not knowing any better, I kept trying to fill that. It was mostly with the wrong things. And I had such longing and I didn't know for what. And I felt like that image really spoke to the quest that my story tells about. And honestly, when I went to get my um, other picture taken like two years ago for the book, I couldn't replicate that look in my face anymore because I'm not that sad person anymore. Mm -hmm. So... So you talk a lot about music and dance in your book, and I noticed that it did play a prominent role. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, music and what it means to you? Sure. Um, the music is almost its own character in the book, it becomes, because I, I came to use it as the sort of the litany of my life. Um, because I didn't really have anyone to teach me what was real and what wasn't. And um, my inf complete immersion in it began in 1964 when my bland, boring suburban world was turned upside down by 
seeing James Brown and the Famous Flames perform Please, Please, Please at the taping of the Tammy show. That's another Forrest Gump moment in my life that I was in the audience for that show. Yeah. Um, and I've personally never met anyone else who was. Um, I'd never heard soul music before. And something about it just moved me. I, I became a diehard disciple of Motown and Stax and later the blues. But as fun and passionate as, <clears throat> excuse me, the music was and how much I loved to dance to it, the lyrics for most of those songs just glorified misery and suffering, including Since I Lost My Baby, which, you know, uh, among other things says, uh, good things are bad and what's happy is sad since I lost my baby. Songs like Ain't Too Proud to Beg, I Could Never Love Another After Loving You, My Whole World Ended the Moment You Left Me, led me as a, as a young inf influential or easily influenced teenager to believe that I was worthless without a man and should let him treat me bad. So I may as well have been walking around with a tattoo across my forehead that said 1-800-VICTIM-EVEN-THE-CALL-IS-FREE. Mm -hmm. And that led to another Forrest Gump type moment where I was introduced to the architect of Motown and the writer of Since I Lost My Baby. I was in my late 20s and I came to that meeting prepared to indict Motown for all that I'd been through. And I asked him, why did you lie to me? <laughs> I said, if you'd put the word God in those songs, instead of the word you, I wouldn't have gotten into so much trouble. He was so gracious and he laughed, but in a kind, very kind way. And I believe he knew what I meant because he's a spiritual person. But by then, probably the statute of limitations on true believers like me had expired. So he didn't take any liability for it. And then a few years later, I was fortunate to discover gospel music, which had the same powerful effect on me, but with hopeful, uplifting lyrics. And I realized that I had been right all along about replacing God in those songs for a person. Yes. I, and I really love that part of the book when I read it. It, it was an aha moment for me, too, when you, when you came to that conclusion. So... And also, do you have a lot of subtitles of songs in your book? Is yes. That, okay. Yes. Well, I, you cannot use, um, for good reason, you cannot use song lyrics in a book. You just don't even want to. And, you know, my, I believed enough in myself as a writer that I was like, I don't need to. I can explain what I have to say. And then I created a resource, which I'll talk about where if you've never heard those songs, you can go and click on and hear everything right in real time with reading the book. But I use them because uh, music defined my life. It was my best friend. It was my teacher. It was my gospel. It was my everything from the time I was 14 years old. And um, throughout the book, the songs that I use as the subtitles each subtitle represents the experience I was having, the mood or the influence of what I was writing about in that particular section. So it's really good to have a guide that you can go to as you're reading. And oh, okay, that's what she was, she was listening to 
Bobby Womack singing, I'm looking for a love while she was writing about looking for a love. Um, and because my taste in music covers such a wide range of genres and decades and all that, I um, created this resource, which is called, I called it a cultural de decoder. And it's free. Anyone can get it on my website. What it is, is chapter by chapter, section by section, every song that's referenced in the book um, linked to hopefully a video, if I could find it, of someone singing it back in the day, 50, 60 years ago, or at least just the music. And then also, and it goes right along with the chapters of the book. And then also it, because of the era that I lived through and not even people my age didn't live through everything I lived through because I lived on the West Coast and all of that. So it also links the references to people and historic events that I reference in the book. Um, so it's free, it's on my website. And there's also a playlist of music videos and a Spotify playlist. Excuse me, Spotify play. Say that loud. Say that three times and see what you say. <laughs> a Spotify list that you can get for free. That's really fun. They're both really fun to listen to. No, I'm really glad you put that um, decoder together because uh, I knew about some of the events and heard some of the songs but I'm not from the era that you grew up in. So it was very eye-opening to me. And I'm so glad that you have this resource because then I was able to quickly link for more information. And I think that's, and it, oh my gosh, you put a lot of work into that because it is a long, it's, I mean, it's very helpful and it's, and it goes through everything that you put in your book. So um, I'm so glad you, you have that as a resource. Thank you. And the, my website is salimanimoy.com. That's easy enough to remember. So yes. It's just free. Anybody, you don't even have to have bought the book. Anybody can click on it and get it. Yeah, I, it's very helpful. So um, you talk about, well, there's a lot of people in your life that influenced you. Do you want to talk a little bit about who those influencers were? Sure, I do. Um, with, with regard to the people in the book, um, I, I have to start with an African-American musician I met in Barcelona in 1970, who said to me, there's more to life than the physical realm. And that was the first inkling I ever had of the spiritual world. And it really did set me on my journey to find the big truth. In the book, I call him the blues man. And that was my quest throughout the the years that the book covers, which was to find love and the big truth. And then out of that, I realized I also needed to find my daughter. Um, another person was a few years later from that, when I was living in Oakland, my path crossed with a young playwright named Burial Clay II. And I took a creative writing course from him in San Francisco, out of which I wrote a play called The Daddies, based on the women I, I met. Uh, well, that's another part of the story when I was in jail. <laughs> um, Burial is the man who challenged me to become a writer. And in 1978, he chose to produce my play at a theater in San Francisco um, as part of a trilogy that he was doing that included a play he'd written. 
I'd never been encouraged by anyone to take myself seriously for anything except being in trouble. And what he, what he gave to me in that was just unbelievable. It, it's under his wing. I felt like I was finally becoming who I was supposed to be. I was 28 years old. And, but then two weeks before opening night, Burial got killed by a drunk driver and he was only 34 years old. Uh, I, I was devastated. The whole community was devastated. Um, he changed my life forever and, and then he just disappeared. So wanting to fulfill that directive he gave me, I um, decided to study novel writing. And one of my next great influences as far as a writer was a teacher I had in Berkeley called Len named Leonard Bishop. And I started writing under him a novel about a soul singer whom I named Clayton Willow, who grows up in Chicago and um, wants to emulate this, the path of his hero, Sam Cooke, believing, of course, that he'll never fall to the same ending that Sam Cooke does. Um, and while I was writing my memoir, I decided to drop in a few passages from my novel about Clayton Willow into my into a memoir, making since I lost my baby something of a turdecan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and another two other people that influenced me who who are in the book it are um, Halifu Osamari, who taught me African dance at her studio, Everybody's Creative Arts Studio in Oakland. Knowing Halifu whom I refer to as my mentoress, and becoming a dancer, which I did for over 40 years, became transformative in my life. It just played a huge role in who I became. And secondly, there was a singer named Patty Henley, who through gospel music and unconditional love helped direct my path to the big truth that I've been seeking for so long. So those are, those are some of them. That's so wonderful. Thank and you did um, mention your character, Clayton Willow, which I thought was fascinating in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, did you finish that novel? <laughs> well, uh, no, but he lives and spoiler alert dies mm -hmm. in, um, since I lost my baby. Yeah. Uh, after 900 pages, the lesson for me about writing was that my true story was the one I tell, not his. But what I did in writing the book and writing my memoir was when I came to the part where I talked about taking the novel writing class, Clayton Willow was kind of the, um, I don't know the correct word, but kind of the illustration from the other side of things, from the music side of things, of someone who was discovering their place, he was discovering, trying to discover his place in the world coming from the church. I was trying to discover my place in the gospel coming from the world. And so that kind of, kind of, I felt like it worked together pretty well. And there is enough in there, there's only maybe five passages, but they pretty much show the arc uh, of his life. And, uh, I guess it worked because so far you're the only person that's ever made a big deal about it oh. and no one's ever complained. So it flows. And yeah. for anyone who's a writer, I'll just say this, which is one of the great things Leonard taught me. 
The only thing that matters is to keep the reader reading. It doesn't matter how you do it. Forget you can't do this, you can't do that. It only works when, you know, if you can keep the reader reading, that's it. That's all a writer has to do. So evidently I did that with Clayton Willow. You did. That's really good advice too. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, um, this, you had a, you found your daughter. Yes, I did. And it was a very public reunion. So can you share that experience with us? I would love to. Um, I got, I had, you know, been told from time beginning, just go home and pretend it never happened, which of course is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, but I had, you know, set myself to trusting and believing in the decision that I'd made and I didn't want to disrupt her life. And when she was 18 years old, uh, I, I stayed in contact with the adoption agency. And when she was 18 years old, I expected her to find me and she didn't. So I waited a few years and then I just felt this compulsion um, that she needed to be found. So I searched, this was before the internet, this was the late 1980s. Uh, I, there's no DNA, there's no internet, there's none of that. Uh, I wound up using a bounty hunter to find my daughter. And um, after three years of searching, I did that and I called her. And it was really an unbelievable experience for both of us. Um, and I have a friend named Akuso Abusia, who's an actress. Uh, and she partnered with me um, through that search. And then after I reached, I talked to my daughter for the first time in May 1991, I booked a ticket to Oklahoma City to, to meet her. Then I called Akusua to tell her the good news. And Akusua asked if I might want to have the moment when we first met recorded on video, which I never even gone to thinking about that. She had been in the film, uh, The Color Purple, she played Nettie, and she offered to check with Oprah to see if they had any reunions shows scheduled, you know, coming up, which was something they did, Oprah did a lot during the 1990s. So they did, and um, they sent a camera crew to the Oklahoma City Airport to capture our first, very first moment seeing one another in person. And then about two weeks later, we were guests on the show. And um, the video of that reunion and on um, Oprah is on my website also. The interesting thing about that was, I, I really didn't have a face to put to my daughter at all. I just, you know, I, and when I saw her, I was like, well, she doesn't exactly look like me. And then it took a couple hours and she is a spitting image of my mother, which I guess that's a karmic payback or something. <laughs> I don't know, but it was, it's beautiful because my mother was gone by then. And to see her in my daughter's face was kind of like a extra blessing too. Yes. So you can watch that video on your website of being reunited on Oprah and I watched it again this morning. Oh, oh, it just you. brings a tear to my eyes when I watch it. It's so beautiful. So, okay. Um, 
What do you want readers to take away from your memoir? Well, I, I, want, I want them to take away, value yourself. Listen to the voice that encourages and directs you, not to the ones that tell you anything less than that. And sometimes that voice is, is inside. Follow your heart and your dreams and be willing to recognize that change is necessary when the path you thought you ought to go on is a dead end. Because that happens. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing I had to overcome is this idea of pretend it never happened. Mm -hmm. It became mistakenly noble in my mind, especially after the trauma of losing my daughter. And it negatively influenced all my relationships for years to come. And I call it in my book, The River Denial. That river took on a life of its own as I went along with abuse, injustice, and lies in order to belong. Pretending something never happened isn't forgiveness. So no matter how painful or unpleasant it may be, the truth does set our souls free. And the truth is this, you are worthy. No matter who recognizes it or doesn't, walk in the dignity of who you were created to be, not in comparison to others, and never give up. Being different is lonely, but it doesn't make you less than other people. Instead of trying to fit in, love who you are and shine that into the world. And then again, if you just want to read the book for entertainment, it's a fun ride. <laughs> it is. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is amazing advice. Thank you so much for giving that to us. And it's something I think well, I need to hear and others I think will need to hear that too. Um, but yeah, so I love this book. I loved your memoir. And it is, you, it is funny that you describe it as Forrest Gump moments because I can see that. I can definitely, see, and actually it should be a movie. It should be the woman version of it. <laughs> well, if I can add this, and I won't get into a big long thing about it. Yeah. I mean, I crossed paths with so many of the iconic and sometimes really terrible moments of this of my generation. I you can read this on the, you can read chapter one on my website. I I ran into the Manson girls in in jail. I crossed paths. I lived right down the street from People's Temple. And as a true believer, had I just gone in there once, I would have wound up not just drinking the Kool-Aid, but serving it, you know. Um, so many things in my life and so many of the people that I met, I never thought I would meet. I never planned to meet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm grateful for that. I talk about the grace of God in my book, and that definitely led me where I was going and kept me from where I didn't need to go. Yeah. So that's wonderful. And okay, so now where can readers find your book? Um, everywhere and anywhere. Amazon, of course. Um, if you don't like Amazon, you can go to your favorite bookseller. There is a list, a link on my website, salimanimoy.com, to hold all the different places that sell the books. Or if you think of some place that's not on there, just ask them. Um, you could even go into a, 
brick and mortar store and ask them to order it if you want it. Um, and I, I love to hear from readers. I absolutely adore it. It blesses my soul. So if you um, want to contact me, you can do that on my site. And I also have an e-love letter that goes out every two weeks if you want to sign up for that. It's free. That's great. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Salima, for spending time with us and sharing your story and your memoir with us today. Thank you, Annie. Thank you for listening. Soulful Series is hosted by me, Annie Catherine. Soulful Series is a Vienna Studios production produced by Vanessa Ferlano. Music by Vanessa Ferlano. Catch you next time. Part of the ACAST community.